Welcome to the Networking for the People podcast series. If you're looking for guidance on NFTs, you've come to the wrong place. But stick around anyway, as we figure out what our friends are up to, why they're doing what they do, and how they ended up getting there in the first place. I'm Robert. Welcome to NFTP. Today, we welcome Dr. Jennifer Weiser. She's currently a professor in chemical engineering at the Cooper Union, with her coursework and research focusing on both traditional chemical engineering practices and on modern biomedical applications. Her education and industry work initially focused on organic chemistry, controlled drug delivery, and the creation of polymeric biomaterials. It has since expanded to cover various topics in bioadhesives, disc cell therapy, and further publishing work through joint collaborations with various hospitals in New York City, like Mount Sinai and Montsefiore Hospital, as well as the AO Research Institute in Davos, Switzerland. Some of you may know her as my graduate school advisor, where we sought to improve operating room conditions, but I'll save that maybe for later in the conversation. Professor Weiser, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. So as per usual, I like to jump right into it. In your own words, who are you and what do you do? I guess the most basic answer is I'm an engineer and scientist, but really um, <laughs> I'm an educator, I'm a mentor, I'm a researcher, I'm a club advisor to everything, uh, admissions rep, you know, just so many things. Uh, but really what I see myself at Cooper is providing experiences for those Cooper students that you just can't get at Cooper. You know, I'm still a professor. I still teach all of these classes, but I'm also really a, a conduit for this bigger network of science engineering that's outside of Cooper. Mm -hmm. And I think many people know New York kind of being one of the biggest collections of research and ideas and collaboration, especially to city that grows outwards and upwards, similar to not only the buildings, you know, maybe a civil engineering department uh, at Cooper can comment on that, but also just again to the ideas and that spread of knowledge. I think that even as a small school like Cooper, you help foster and you get that help with the faculty and with the students too. Yeah, no, it's been wonderful to be able to sort of use the expertise and just the passion that Cooper students have and just get them the opportunities. Because once you get a Cooper student somewhere, everyone's like, I want another one. I want another one. And I'm like, yes, I can give you another Cooper student. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, fueling the interests of students and the people around you ties and comes from your own background interests as well. How did you first become interested in the field of drug delivery, biomaterials, all of the hospital related <laughs> and healthcare work? Well, really how I got into drug delivery and biomaterials was my graduate school advisor. I mean, I always tended to skew toward sort of medical things. I actually spent 10 years on a volunteer ambulance corps, but I realized, you know, being a physician just wasn't what I wanted. I don't think I could handle actually it, being a physician, but, you know, I thought I could take all of this engineering background and really my love of organic chemistry and sort of pivot that to pharmaceuticals and really pharmacology. And so um, I wound up, you know, as we'll talk about probably at some point, working in industry as a medicinal chemist, but I had this sort of serendipitous meeting with my graduate school advisor before he was my advisor, because my brother who was doing an MEng and BME at Cornell before he went to medical school, took a course with this advisor, David Putnam, and said, Jen, you just, you gotta meet this guy. And I was like, I'm busy. I have a big girl job. I can't, I don't have time to meet you. Um, but I, he set up a meeting on a Friday and you know, I drove up from you know Pearl River, New York up to Ithaca, four hour drive. I got stuck in traffic and, you know, this guy and waited as, for as me. As one does. As to one does, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Dave waited for me for like an hour on a Friday at like five o'clock. And I was like, who is this guy? He's so nice. He doesn't owe me anything. 
And we sat down and talked sort of about, you know, his background where he, he was a pharmacist by training and then, you know, did pharmacology and wound up in chemical and biomedical engineering. And I talked about my background, but, you know, I really thought I was going to go to graduate school for pharmacology. And he said, you know, you don't have to give up, you know, doing the organic chemistry and the synthesis. You can pivot to biomedical engineering. And I was like, huh, really? And then, you know, it turns out it was his 40th birthday. He literally waited for me as I was late, you know, and I was like, I really appreciate this, this, you know, person spending this time with me. And he gave me a list of names of places to apply. And I applied half pharma, half BME. And eventually, I think it was in February or March, you know, I'd heard back of where I was going to or where I'd been accepted. And, you know, he contacted me saying, you know, I just won the NSF career. I have funding. Come to my lab. And I said, sold. You know, I like That's how he treated yeah. me as a person. Yeah. And uh, he asked me, oh, you want to start this summer? And I was like, you know, I want to get my big girl salary for a couple more months. And so no, I'll see you in, in August. <laughs> Um, but that's really how I got into drug delivery and biomaterials. Instead of making small molecules, his lab was polymers, you know, macromolecules. And I learned how to take my synthesis, make these bigger macromolecules for drug delivery. And so it was like a, a really wonderful marriage of my, my engineering background, the organic chemistry I'd sort of picked up for working in industry, and then um, applying that to drug delivery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's like you said, you pivoted once and you kind of are coming full circle with <laughs> what you're teaching and what your research is on these days. Organic chemistry was probably one of my favorite courses in college, I think, just by the nature of the material, the textbook, even though it sounds funny to say it's all about sometimes the presentation of how we read and listen and watch things. That's really how we can find the best things that work for us. So it's really nice to have the different sources. And sometimes it's just that professor, right? It's that figure in front of you that's providing you the environment, you you know, really getting the right language and the right kind of harmony. Right? That's really what, what it's all about. Oh, yeah, 100%. And I know you wanted to talk about my time at, at Wyeth as an organic chemist. But for that, you know, I got into organic chemistry because I'd heard horror stories. I'm an undergraduate of how hmm. bad it was. And I knew I think the that's semester. The general, that's the general yeah, right. uh, thoughts, yeah. But shout out to Professor Savisky, my yeah. uh, organic chemistry professor. I, I took, I think, every single one of his classes. Uh, wasn't I wasn't the best, but I, I don't know something about the coursework and the way that he taught really resonated with me. Yeah, the same thing. I I had the opportunity to take orgo over a summer, and it was you know it was in this region. It was taught by someone who's actually a CUNY professor at a primary undergraduate, just like Hooper. And, you know, it was at night over the summer. So it meant four to five hours a night of straight organic chemistry. But I loved it. You know, he taught it in such a way that it made sense. And I loved how it was just like little logic puzzles. And so it was my favorite course by far. And I wound up after graduating because at the time, you know, I was an undergraduate chemi at RPI. You only had to take Orgo 1, no lab. And so I had taken Orgo 1 with a lab. I graduated and I said, you know what? I want to take Orgo 2 for fun because this guy is teaching it. And so I took Orgo 2 after graduating, <laughs> not needing it. And, you know, that actually helped propel me into that job because he had a, an ex-master student who was working at Wyeth Pharmaceuticals at the time and they were looking to hire. And he said, Jen, apply. And I said, okay, I'll apply as a chemi to a <laughs> medicinal chemist job. And, you know, it's that sort of opportunity that, you know, I, I had studied really hard. He recognized that I understood it, but, you know, it's a different from a lecture versus a lab setting, but mm -hmm. it helps, you know, get my foot in the door to be like, Hey, I have this resume. I think I can do this job. Hire me. Yeah. 
And I, I love the instances of small world. I know we'll talk about it over and over <laughs> again. I think that, you know, uh, some of the questions coming up, but similar to where you started off, you said your brother had this connection <laughs> uh, through David Putnam. Um, and that really just helped fuel and put you in that direction. Now, when I see, you know, how courses change, how ideas change, even when applying to jobs for either for myself or, you know, some of the younger, um, the younger generation, maybe the students that are in college now and high school now, they can get sometimes so focused. They, I'm including myself in this category too, you get so focused in what you want to do for a job choice, a class that you become blind. You literally have the blinds on. Um, but it's a poor uh, horse racing analogy, and I think the reason why in horse racing, why the horses have the you know the the side blinds is so that they don't get scared of the other horses <laughs> chasing them. I think in this case, though, it's okay to take those blinds off to see what's going on around you, right? To see what other opportunities exist. Chemical engineers can definitely apply to medicinal chemistry jobs, and even <laughs> vice versa. It's similar to that perspective. I think we were talking a little earlier where. You just need to come at it with the right perspective. Uh, I know I've said this word a couple of times, but I think it's really an underrated idea. Yeah, no, it was very, it was very different. And, you know, this applies to pretty much every student getting in, going from a job, but going from school to going to a nine to five job in a big industry is a very different pace. And maybe it's just engineers, but like, I don't know what to do with myself. I had so much free time. Yeah, <laughs> I know Robert didn't know what called, to do yeah. with himself, but <laughs> now he has a podcast. But, yeah. you know, it was a very, it was a very different feeling. And, you know, working at Wyeth, which for those who don't know Wyeth, it's now Pfizer. So I hope you know that one. Um, when we worked, it was nine to five and you couldn't work weekends. It just wasn't safe if you're the only one in the lab. Mm -hmm. And plus you have limited vacation. So it was not like a mindset I really liked. <laughs> and when I was back in industry, but at the startup, you know, that was more like 16 to 18 hour days. So a very different thing. So going going back to academics or why I sort of like this life is I'd rather work, you know, three times as hard and keep myself busy, but then, you know, have the illusion that time is my own. And maybe <laughs> that's why I like academics so much. But, but yeah, that's a fair point. I know we started to kind of hint to it already. And you just mentioned as well is this pivot from industry to academia, but now working with places that kind of have a mixture of both, whether it's a academic hospital, you know, teaching hospital or practicing hospital. Um, in this pivot and in these spaces, you had those same instances of small world experiences. Can you describe how that played out as you eventually found, you know, the professorship and opportunity to come teach at Cooper Union? Uh, of course, yeah, right. So I sort of always knew I wanted to be a professor or sort of teach in some capacity. And, you know, like I had TA'd in every department imaginable in undergrad. <laughs> like I TA'd machine shop. Like I loved machine shop. Uh, I TA'd in grad school for Dave. Uh, I was an adjunct <laughs> professor for Orgo and Gen Chem. How I got to Cooper was very much like a stars aligning kind of moment. And so it all starts with my mom. So networking, networking with her. So also she, she was a professor in biochemistry. Also, right? also a professor of biochemistry. So sort of an apple not falling far from the tree yeah. situation. <laughs> um, but she had been taking me to this local science symposium called the Nickel Symposium in White Plains since I was in my early teens. And like, I didn't understand the science. Right? It was just sort of a fun thing to do on a Friday. And I just kept going. Every year we would go and there's there's a bunch of talks and then there's a cocktail hour and then there's a dinner. And I used to go when I was at Cornell, I would just sneak away. Don't tell the advisor you're gone. I, I did the same thing at the startup. I did it uh, at Yale. And it was my second year at Yale that I went to the Nichols Symposium. And during the cocktail hour, you know, I lost track of my mom. 
And she comes back like you know, 20 minutes later being like, Jen, Jen, you got to meet this person. And I was like, okay. And so I, she introduced me to Dean Savisky, who at the time was just Professor Savisky of Chemistry at Cooper. And she's like, hey, my daughter's an engineer. You work at an engineering school. You should talk. <laughs> and I was like, okay, stranger. Hello. And so, you know, we got talking. And at the time, you know, I'd spent, I don't know, 15 years in biomedical or so, something like that. And I really didn't see myself as a chemical engineer. And we got talking about Cooper and there's no biomedical major here. And he's like, well, we have Kemi and there's the Canbar Center for Biomedical Research through Meki. And I was like, well, you know, probably not a good fit, but it's kind of cool to meet you. And we, we exchanged information and I maybe I sent him my CV at that time, but I just remember the next year when I was applying for jobs and I thought I had a different job that actually, well, I thought I was falling through, but it didn't. Uh, I panicked and I was like, oh my God, I met this guy at this conference. Let me, let me reach <laughs> out again. And so I emailed Dean Savisky and it was like, hey, you remember me from last year? You know, are you guys hiring? He's like, well, the chemis are. And I was like, I, I could be a chemi, sure. <laughs> and so I sent him my academic package. And when he looked through my CV, he re recognized one of my, or not the CV, but the recommenders you usually have like three phone numbers you need to give. And he recognized one of my recommenders as a friend from him or his at Yale when he was in a PhD. Mm. And so my minor advisor in graduate school, Laura Estroff, who was in material science, knew, you know, Ruben. So I was like, well, that's a small world. And then when I was interviewing, you know, Professor Davis, he did his undergraduate at Cornell and he knew my postdoctoral advisor, who was my other recommender, because he took Love classes it. with him at <laughs> Cornell it. before before Mark Mark Saltzman left or Cornell to start BME at Yale. So it's like just sort of these small things that, you know. I have this bigger network of experiences and it just was right right place, right time, but I had the foundation that they needed. And so it was within like three weeks, I got the job. I was like, well, okay. So <laughs> it's just your theme of networking, right? Have a network, you know, set yourself exactly. up for the right opportunities. <laughs> exactly, no, I and I tell people that all the time, no matter how far you go or how many places you think are new, you'll find familiar things and ideas and people in those places um, that you wouldn't have, wouldn't have expected before. For me, my favorite thing nowadays is, especially when I'm traveling, whether by myself or with friends, is being with people, with the same people in different places, and you know, thinking about where you are, how you got there, and just really reflecting on the opportunities that got you there. So I'm really happy that you kind of tied a lot of those elements together through the application process. I had all those uh, professors when I was an undergrad student, uh, <laughs> as a grad student as well. So it's nice to see all those connections kind of come into place too. And now that you know, I'm out of the tr true, um, let's say, learning experience with the true schooling experience. You know, I'm taking classes here and there, kind of on my own nowadays. But really, uh, that foundation, I think, um, from Cooper and from the faculty, and how you as well kind of came into the school and learning from you. It really was just all, you know, one big, uh, one big small world um, where you can kind of feel that, like the the, the energy is there, um, and it really just makes I think that whole process easier. The material, of course, isn't easy, but when you're given and you have the network set up for you and you have connections that kind of help you get there, that can you know make a three month process turn into a three week process, especially when it comes to getting a job. Hopefully, that made your life a little bit less stressful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the whole process was stressful of like, I need a job, <laughs> I need to pay bills. But yeah. you know, the, the process of a, through Cooper was very surreal, right? Between like, 
the first phone interview to getting interviewed like three times, like through the whole process of like 12 interviews a day. And then like a week later being like, you want the job? And I'm like, I'll be a chemi, sure. <laughs> and then spending the entire summer relearning all of my chemical engineering. Right. But like, you know, like I said, and like, you know, as well, it's the collaboration effort from the teaching side and the learning side that you can kind of, you just get better at your job probably. And I've seen that too as oh, well. And, oh, you know, 100%. I'm by no means an expert in anything I do, but just try to learn a little bit each day. You know, we get 1% better. Um, over a course of a month, you'll get, you know, 30 times better, right? I owe a lot of that actually to the, the teaching side to Cooper, right? When I came in, I learned through the classic R1, you know, just get lectured at, I don't have time for you, you know, professors. And not that they were bad people, well, not all of them, but they just didn't know how to teach. And I thought just because I liked teaching, I was good at it. No, I was terrible at teaching. I just <laughs> happened to be lucky that it was Professor Lepic who fought really hard for Professor Simpson and I, who's another Cooper Chemi faculty start at the same time, to go to the chemical engineering summer school, which is something that happens every five years. And the chemies are super into engineering education, didn't even realize that that was a huge mm -hmm. field. And that happened to be the summer before we both started. And I know Professor Simpson had more uh, teaching experience like that, but I had never. And so I got thrown into living in a dorm at NC State with a bunch of like 200 other faculty. And the senior faculty taught the junior faculty, like, no, there are ways to teach that are not just lecturing at someone. And I remember I had sort of written most of my lectures for the material science course, scrapped them completely after that first day. I was like, nope, we're starting again. And so <laughs> it really is, you know, I had this really, strong foundation of translational research throughout my career but it, that education it turns out was a whole nother field that sort of opened up to me mm -hmm. yeah while i do want to move on i think that's a really interesting <laughs> point i think i know some of the ways i've also looked at in terms of creating training workshops for my teams and how to put resources together is i think there's this like four question teaching technique um, that i've started to read about and I guess some of the questions you ask, it really encourages how to analyze the situation, kind of the before, during, after, you know, what did you learn? Why is it important? How is it relevant, not only to what you're doing, but to yourself as a person um, and how it has that related to your past experiences. For myself as someone that puts together like, you know, best documentation practices and how do we put together a good set of reports to keep our regulatory team happy? Um, Sure, I can put together a bunch of examples and, you know, put some nice slides together. Um, but how I like to or how I, would, how I would like to start the talk is talk about my own experience where I had to write, you know, a regulatory section. I was given like a dozen documents to work with and said, OK, here you go. Like you can go to get started. And I remember looking at it like, OK, this is kind of what I asked for. I did want to do this. But these reports were in these 12 reports were in 12 different formats. <laughs> 12 different stages of approval, some are missing, you know, data verification, etc. Um, so, you know, tying back to your point, there's a good way and there's a great way. So it's always nice to kind of find those steps along um, to help you get from point A to point B. I want to yeah. touch on, I think, kind of partly what you mentioned, there's a research piece and there's the teaching piece with research and with, you know, making time for it, but also having resources available to yourself, um, not as an individual professor, but even as a department, as a school, professors and other professionals in academia overall 
often have to write grants to secure funding for that research. Some have to write it more frequently, some less frequently, but overall, you know, looking at it from the outsider's perspective, it is this kind of perpetual effort to secure funding for research, whether it's for undergrad or graduate school level. What has the experience of grant writing been for you? And maybe what is some advice also where you can reflect as well uh, on, you know, your own personal experiences, what, what you learned and what you did in that process? <laughs> oh, grant writing. I think the sum up is painful. It's always <laughs> painful. At Cooper, right, it's really tough because I, like, I have this really cool science I want to do, or I might have like this kooky new education thing I want to do. And it's really, really tough to prove to the most of the U.S. government and the panel of peers why I should be capable of it. And so I had been part of grants, you know, through my graduate, but more my postdoc work. And so like, I kind of knew bits and pieces of the process, but what's really different is that these bigger schools, like an R1 school, even some of the primary undergraduates of POI schools, they have a grants office, right? They have someone who's a specialist in this. And, you know, a grant is not just writing the cool science, right? You got to figure out budgets and timelines and you need to have like square footage of lab space and equipment and just collecting all this information. And a real grants office knows that, right? They already have the knowledge of it or like, here's the equipment list for this lab. And they can even notice when like little things are incorrect. So I guess a good example would be um, I didn't, I was a secondary or sub-award on an NIH grant with Mount Sinai and their grants office flagged my collaborator letter because the Cooper Union official letterhead is outside the margins for an official <laughs> NIH. Yeah. yeah, we would have not gotten the grant because my letter was not in the right margins. Like, so we don't even have that sort of check at Cooper. And so it's really tough sort of to be the primary and, you know, I, I have tried, right, to do a traditional grant at Cooper. Um, you know, I, the NSF grant that I submitted last was like something like 103 pages. And I had wow. to write every single page, had to do every check. You know, I had to figure out budgeting and overhead and all these things that, you know, not generally what a, a PI has to be in charge of. And in that giant document, only 15 pages of the science. So wow. it's like, it's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of work. And so Cooper doesn't have a grants office right now. I think they're trying to find someone to help, which would be you know, really useful because there are more faculty nowadays that do have a lot more you know, strong translational research. It's not just me, but you know, just like Cooper students at, at a primary undergraduate at Cooper, you know, we think outside the box. Uh, <laughs> and I was really fortunate. Uh, Dean Shoup identified this private organization that you know, we pitched uh, sort of this general bioengineering idea. It was myself and four other faculty plus Shoup and it was sort of these BME projects. And we actually got the grant, which I was surprised and happy. So we got $1.6 million over three years and they were unrestricted funds, unlike an NIH or NSF where it's like, this is exactly the science. I got free reign to sort of be like, I wanna do some neat stuff and I'm just gonna try it. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what propelled this kooky education stuff I do with these pipelines of uh, creating new labs. So students work with me to do edu engineering education and that trains them how to do translational research. And then I get to place them and work with them at places like Mount Sinai or the AO Institute and, you know, give these experiences to Cooper students that have, you know, are so capable, but mm -hmm. they haven't had that independent research yet. And so I get to sort of work with them at a lower, not I wouldn't say lower level, just at a different level in engineering education, but then make them think about how you set up an experiment or just what constraints do you need? And then once they get into a, a higher functioning lab, with all this equipment, they're already trained and ready to go. So I've been really lucky in that regard. 
And so right now I'm at this precipice of, do I still try to go for these NIH, NSF grants? You know, it's easier to be a sub-award when the primary is a different, you know, big institute. There are newer mechanisms that are focusing on primary undergrads where we're not competing with the big R1 school. So I may mm -hmm. apply to those again, but also these private small foundations, like I gotta just sort of firebomb everything and hope I can find something for the best. Mm -hmm. um, but so, you know, back to your question, I guess, on advice for grant writing, you know, if you're a professor at a big R1 school, you probably got the job because you did the classic. I got my my F32s, I got my my K99, I converted all of that. So I know grants, but you generally will have a grants office. And in in the end, it's if you want to go for a big R01 grant, you're going to hopefully work with a more established PI who mm -hmm. can collaborate with you and be a mentor, which is really something you need to be able to perfect that sort of art of grantsmanship. But, mm. you know, at a small school or a primary undergrad, right? Maybe you got to think outside the box, you know, find those grants that are specifically tailored for your school or, you know, find some sort of weird private foundation that's willing to, to say, okay, here's some money for you to do some science. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. And maybe I'll give some perspective here to the audience that maybe isn't familiar with some of those research levels. Uh, R1 schools, there's R2 schools, usually doctoral programs that have high levels of research activity. I think some of the biggest names in terms of, at least in the U.S., I don't know, um, on the more international scale, but you have places like Harvard, Yale, Johns Hopkins. Some of these schools spend billions of dollars actually in this R&D activity. I know as someone that works in the biotech space myself, we're, we're scrutinized sometimes for saying, oh, we need a fundraise, we need all this money. And we have similar expenditures in the billions of dollars. But even in academia, right? Um, you similarly need a lot of funding, a lot of grants and materials and students <laughs> to help you uh, achieve your goals. Um, so when you see something like, you know, these top research universities spending billion of dollars, but then you hear, a, you know, on the smaller side, something like Cooper would get a $1.6 million grant. That's great. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's a, a different order of magnitude, but, you know, the research obviously is more focused and develops in one way or another, uh, depending on those resources. Yeah, it's also, um, it's not just getting the money for your science. There's things called overhead, like different mm -hmm. schools have different amounts of overhead to pay for the electricity in your lab, you know, admin. <laughs> and so a place like Mount Sinai, their overhead is 69%. So like you basically have to wow. get double your grant to be able to afford the grant. And so the money goes very quickly when you have these caps oh, yeah. on things. And, you know, it's an, it's an industry to get that sort of funding. And the, you know, the mechanisms that are looking at the primary undergrad, I think the ones, at least for the NIH, you will qualify as long as your school has within, is it like three years, you get less than $6 million from, you know, government funds. It's like Cooper has very little, so we qualify, but it's trying to protect a school like Cooper where, you know, we don't have PhD students, we don't have the infrastructure. And so, you know, the attempt to go after that sort of grant. So I'm I'm all over, right? I'm trying to figure out the best way to to keep getting funding because I get to do these really fun things. Yeah, that you know need money. I don't want to mm -hmm. say, hey, student, work for me for the summer for free. Like you should be paid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think one uh, funny analogy, I guess, to tie to some of the work that I used to do is one of the cost saving measures, right? At least to lower overhead expenses can be just close a few months, just close a few months in the lab. Uh, those <laughs> things take a lot of electricity. You know, you know, pull and filter so much air. It's a small scale example of you know operating rooms. They have this huge 
laminar airflow apparatus and pressure systems. So it's really the, some of the smaller things that can really make a big difference in terms of cutting some of those overhead costs. But that's that's really funny uh, that there's such a big oh disparity. Gosh. I would not have guessed that. Yeah, those I mean, Cooper are so high. Cooper's is like 40% overhead. It's still, it's a lot. So it's tough to sort of figure out how you can afford what you want to do when science is mm -hmm. actually quite expensive. I want to take a little bit of a step back from some of the research, some of the grant writing and some of the professorship and tied to one element, I guess, that you brought up a couple of times. You have your brother who's an orthopedic mm -hmm. surgeon. You've had your mom who is also a professor in biochemistry. So medicine loosely ties your family together. Uh, I know I met your brother when we were working <laughs> at Montefiore Hospital within the operating room. So he gave us that much needed access and that surgical suite perspective. How has that connection and you know familial connection really um, improved, expanded, or maybe in the opposite direction, maybe tampered with uh, <laughs> uh, you know, siblings, siblings do? Well, he still talks to me, so it's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's always good. Uh, but yeah, yeah how, how do you feel that if any way has influenced or impacted any of the decisions and how you go about your day? Yeah, well, so it was interesting. Um, I, it's never a project I thought I would be a part of, right? It didn't even occur in my world. And so my brother during his residency was studying operating room airflow, but he was only doing the experimental. And so he knew that to do the computational, you need computational fluid dynamics, which is not you know, in his skill set, even though he is an engineer. And so when I got the job at Cooper as a chemi, he's like, oh, chemi's no CFD. Can you do this? And I was like, well, not this chemi, but I know a bunch of students who can. <laughs> and so that's how that project came about was just, you know, my brother being like, chemi's do this, you do this. Um, so it was, you know, fun for me to sort of bring that into my portfolio because like I can offer the expertise as how do we approach a research problem like in general, but, you know, you and Aram, uh, Rahman, who worked on the project too, right, had the CFD knowledge. And so it was kind of neat to to have that, especially coming in and doing, you know, you're coming into Cooper, you have to teach like three classes a semester that are completely different. You have no time. So, you know, stepping into a project that was easier to be done, not just in a lab, um, was very, very helpful. But it also was kind of easy or made it easier collaborating with family because I could just yell at him <laughs> when, he, <laughs> when he needed to do something, you know, like you forgot to do this as opposed to, Hey, new research collaborator, you sit there agonizing over every word in an email being like, is this too much over the top? Am I offending them? I don't want to like make them mad. So that was really great. And then, you know, it did pivot after you, you know, Mahir Alam came onto the project and the pandemic happened. And I'm like, yeah. well, at least your project's computational, but we lost access <laughs> to the OR. And, you know, we wound up pivoting the project, too, because he started studying COVID, like what happens if there's a COVID positive patient in the OR, which was really neat to be able to say, you know, here's some best practices. But also, you know, maybe it was a year into the pandemic, you know, the OR was still locked down mm -hmm. to outsiders in the way that we would just stroll in. And I remember what I called it, uh, we had some bio robots. So my brother and a med student went on <laughs> Zoom, we gave them all the equipment. And so on Zoom, we directed them around the operating room, taking measurements for us as we recorded all the data. So we were able to sort of keep that up. But I don't know if that would have happened if it was, you know, my brother being like, go in on a Saturday, do this for me now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, so now, now was, you just watch his yeah. kids when you have free time. And that, that's I know, I do. <laughs> <laughs> that was last weekend. So he owes me. 
it's really neat. And I don't know, you know, depending if there's a student who wants to come in and pick up the project, I'd be more than happy, you know, having my brother just yell at him and let's do this again. Uh, so it has been a really fun, you know, collaboration. And it's very different, you know, when it's a sibling. <laughs> so be like, help me, <laughs> help me now. Yeah, help me help you. <laughs> yeah, true. That's really funny. No, thanks for sharing that. Uh, yeah, I remember working with him was funny. Um, even with myself and Iran there, it's like we weren't even there. You guys were, you know, bickering as siblings do. Uh, <laughs> yes. So, I mean, you know, as someone working and trying to put this research project through and collect this data, it was nice to kind of be in that environment too, where it didn't feel so much pressure and, oh my God, we have to do everything perfectly the, <laughs> as soon as we're here. I remember he just basically opened the door for us and let us, you know. Yeah, <laughs> he was on his phone. <laughs> And then, then during the pandemic, he had to actually do the work. <laughs> yeah. So there's, you know, there's the balance that always comes. Uh, and it's nice that you're able to continue working with him and that we can continue providing these perspectives as, and I'm, air quotes here, for anyone still listening, having those kind of collaborations and environments really just makes it easier to push your work forward, whether you have a strict agenda agenda <laughs> or something a little more loose um, it definitely makes that research and data collection process easier yeah it's also you know not just having a family member but if you have the right collaborators where it isn't such an uptight environment it makes it easier but i think it also makes it easier for students too to see that you don't have to always be in this you know always formal always this that and that you know mm -hmm. yes i have you know collaborators where it's definitely a much more formal environment but I also have collaborators that are not my brother, where, you know, I've become friends with a collaborator. You know, we have a much more I don't know, fun time, let's say, that it, I think students sometimes get surprised. Like we have a our Slack, right, that we use for, yes. for meeting. And sometimes we just send sunset pictures or memes to each other and it's fine. <laughs> yeah, and I think if students knew both sides of that, it would definitely make for slightly more relaxed. Yes, you do want the formal sending, I think the majority of the time in a classroom, mm -hmm. of course during any kind of formal evaluations. But at the end of the day, like we're all just people trying to figure out uh, what we like to do and how we can take those steps to get there. Maybe I'll close us out with one more question for today. Part of what you were just alluding to maybe is working with some of those collaborators, whether they're local, whether they're far away. You have had a couple of recent new developments, whether through hospitals or through other research ventures with journals and schools. Can you talk about any partnerships that you've unlocked, so to say? Yeah, uh, again, it's that theme of networking, right? One of them is just being the associate editor of the journal Frontiers in Biomaterial Science, right? Being able to have that role. Again, that was my graduate advisor, Dave, you know, recommended me to the editor in chief of the subsection I'm in, which is drug delivery or delivery systems and uh, controlled release. Mm -hmm. And so it was that network recommendation, but the person seeing my my CV, my my background and saying, okay, this person is capable of doing it. And then from there, I use my network to find peer reviewers to be able to review any articles that come my way. But I've also, you know, had these really wonderful opportunities, not just at Montefiore with my brother, but the Mount Sinai collaboration that Cooper Union has, which, you know, you were able to benefit from where you, were, you could take classes at Sinai for free and Sinai students can come here. We also have a lot of translational research. So I've worked with Dr. James Iatridis in the orthopedic research labs for many years now. And I've had graduate students, you know, in his lab, undergraduates in his lab. I was able to mentor past Cooper students who I never taught. So Tyler yep. Stefano and Christopher <laughs> Benavienko, full circle, who were doing their PhDs in his lab. And, you know, for Chris's perspective too, um, 
I was asked to be an education mentor for him. And so Chris and I have worked together really closely for years now, and he's actually at UPenn, but we still talk and publish together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his project in a funny, you know, again, network full circle Mm -hmm. sort of way, we were going to publish an engineering education and we were looking at previous publications and we kept citing this, you know, paper, Vernango and Dom, Vernango and Dom. And we realized at some point that Vernango was doing the animal work for him at the AO Institute. So taking his translational materials, doing the sheep study. And so we reached out to Vernango, who names Andrew Vernango, and said, are you this person who wrote this paper when you used to be at <laughs> Rowan University? And she's like, yes, yes, I am. And we're like, do you want to collaborate on education? She's like, I'd love to. And so we've started working on education with Andrew at the AO. Um, but at the same stead, like it translated back into translational research. So I have other projects with the AO and Andrea where I got to send a Cooper student to Switzerland last summer, right? To do this cool 3D printing project we've been working on. And so it's just this big, you know, spider web that mm-hmm. keeps expanding, but it's also kind of a circle. <laughs> well, I guess as such spider webs are, right? Um, <laughs> and so it was, it's been really interesting to have those connections. And now I'm, and I guess I'm in the orthopedic space, which is not something I ever thought. So I made more connections with the Orthopedic Research Society and met other people and hopefully have a few more things coming down the pipeline for other hospitals in the city. So we'll wait and see. But I guess the end of the day, it all comes back to that networking and the fact that, yes, it's right place, right time. But a lot of times, you know, people like to diminish things by saying it was just luck, right? Or it is right place, right time. And honestly, you know, yeah, you need the timing right, but it's the experiences that you collect and that foundation that enables you to tackle the next opportunity and have others see that you are capable of doing it. And so it's not just, oh, my mom, you know, saw Dean Savisky and got me a job. It's like, well, you know, I have the resume to back it up or, you know, Dave Putnam was looking for a student and realized I had industrial experience. And so it's been a really interesting, you know, career journey to have this bigger network. But then also now, right, connecting more and more institutes and bringing those experiences to Cooper students, right? Once I get this Cooper student there, everyone wants more Cooper students. So it's great to, you know, harness all the passion that Cooper students have and bring it to projects where they could really make a huge difference. Because, you know, that's my overall goal in life is to actually put more good out there than I started with. That's where I'm at. Lots of networking. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's a great place for us to end today. Thank you for bring us back full circle and not make me have to. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Uh, No, thanks for giving us your thought process of you working through academia, through the industry, and that cyclic process that kind of keeps on giving both to you and to the students uh, in the school and uh, around you. Definitely looking forward to hearing and seeing about your next steps through future collaborations and published research. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to hear this podcast, (laughs) but thank you so much for having me. Thanks to all our listeners that have made it this far. Please visit our website at nftpcast.com. Complete the Google form on our website to stay in touch, submit future topics and industries for us to cover, recover, and discover. Tune in for the next episode and see you next time. Hi, this is Tyler, the sound engineer with the Networking for the People podcast. If you like today's episode and the music we played, check us out on Facebook and Instagram and at nftpcast.com. Thanks so much and have a great day.